This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. I'm Deborah Lindner with Utah Foster Care. This week's topic, the link between children's behavior and trauma, a topic that Utah foster care trainers tackle right up front in their classes to prepare people to become foster parents. Someone who knows firsthand about teaching this is my co-host, Liz Rivera, UFC's Director of Education. Hi, Liz. Hi. What is the first thing you tell foster parents when you're trying to illustrate to them about how chronic trauma can impact behavior and even learning? So I like the, the, the word you use, chronic trauma, because we, we designate between what we call big T trauma and little t trauma. So the big T trauma is kind of the acute things. I think they're the things that we think about when we think about children coming into foster care, domestic violence, child abuse, even the child being removed from their family. Those are, those are incredibly um, acute traumatic events. But we also want to talk about the small t traumas that actually may have more effect over time. You use the word chronic. And those are the day in, day out developmental insults that actually may have more overall effect on the child's learning and behavior than even sometimes the big T trauma does. So today, um, we are also joined by Les Harris, who is a trainer in the Eastern region, and this is one of the areas he specializes in. We're going to hear from him in just a minute. But first, we are also joined by Doug and Janet McLean. They're foster parents from South Jordan, Utah, and they've been foster parents for many years. And the first question I want to ask you, Doug and Janet, is how did you start to untangle the behaviors you were seeing from the children in your home um, from their history and start to understand how those two things were interplaying? Well, first of all, one interesting thing is our, our first two placements were bio brothers, and they exhibited absolutely opposite behaviors. One of them was... Um, the older one was always in fight mode. He actually went around with his, his little fist up all the time. And he was very aggressive at school, which was new to us. We hadn't experienced that. Where his little brother was more of an internalizer, and he held things in. He, he didn't make sounds when he cried. He, I couldn't put him down for three days. He was afraid of my husband. He was afraid of my teenage son. He hoarded food by holding it in his cheeks. Um, so those were behaviors that we, we had heard about, but to actually see them and experience them was very heartbreaking. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think some of the interesting things were he was so scared of me, right? It's like, how could a little baby be scared of someone I thought I was nice anyway, but he was scared of me. Um, and Liam was in fight mode. So it was always like, he was mad at teachers. He was mad at kids. We had parents complaining mm -hmm. while well, he's always fighting. You know, the teacher was, he tried to hit me type of thing. And it was like, as a new foster parent, I wasn't used to having to deal with that type of conversation with any adult about a child's behavior, let alone a child I was responsible for. So, um, and then poor little Jackson, it's like you, you just raised your voice a little bit and he was like 
fearful for his life. And um, not that I'm a loud speaker, but it was just day in and day out. It's like, what am I doing wrong? It was kind of confusing, hard to to adjust from years of parenting kids that didn't have trauma to all of a sudden, wow, this is this is different, right? You just had to start thinking about their events in their lives and how it impacted them. And you have to adjust because they're little kids. They don't know what's going on in their life either, right? Because that's what their that's what their brain tells them. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a good that's a good lesson too that you had two kids with two totally different reactions to that kind of stress. And I'm going to direct this to Les, who's uh, speaking from his office in Vernal. Um, Les, how, what's the first thing you tell um, foster parents, training to be foster parents in your classes, about you know, how they have to adjust their parenting styles? That's an interesting question because I, it's difficult sometimes for people to understand what I'm about to say, that is parenting a child with a history of trauma is completely different than parenting a child who's born in a home with parents who are nurturing and caring from, from, the, from the beginning. And so I talk to them about not personalizing that because they're not bad parents because the child is responding to them much differently than the, their experience has uh, told them uh, before that having a child join their family. So I, I, I emphasize the effort to recognize the trauma, to recognize the impact that has on the way they confront their world, that these are scared children. And I was very happy to hear the McLean's both talk about that in response to how they uh, recognized what was happening with their kids, which is they were scared, they were, uh, you heard the word fear, and, and essentially that's the basis of the understanding that I would like all of our foster parents to understand is these are not children who are malevolent, malicious, and have malintent to be, act out in a, in a certain way. These are children who are surviving very threatening and scary things. And the more we understand about that, I think the better off we'll be in terms of actually helping them learn to regulate emotions first so that we can then help them learn new behavioral outcomes. Yeah, I think if I just make a statement here, um, when Liam, when I figured out there was something going on with Liam, I asked him, I said, why are you behaving this way? And he said, because everybody hits me, right? And so he was just in self-defense mode because everybody at that point was hitting him. That was his experience. So until I saw that, I didn't realize it. I heard him say that. I didn't realize it. Yeah. And it's good he was able to articulate that because not all kids can oh. explain. So that's good he could. What kind of, either Liz or Les, what kind of just basic things that you, practical things you can have when your uh, foster parents are first learning about what what can they do to get them I guess what we're talking about is regulate themselves yeah, uh, well let me let me speak to that very briefly one of the things that I and, and I don't know if this offends people sometimes but the truth is 
I have to look at the parents and say that when we think about adjusting a child's behavior, the first thing we must do is look in the mirror and recognize that I need to adjust my behavior first, which means, as you said, Deborah, to regulate one's own emotions. There is only one way to help a child who is scared of you, and that is to help them regulate their emotions, thereby accessing the, the learning centers of the brain. Once the child can achieve that state of emotional regulation, then they can learn. But often, as been our experience for many, many years, is we only address behaviors without trying to address the underlying reasons the behavior is happening. And I think that's, that for me, one of the biggest uh, I, uh, characteristics that we have to develop. That begs next question for me too. And, and I think Doug, you, you referenced this. Um, how did you guys, Doug and Janet, how did you look in the mirror? How did you think about what do I need to change? What do I need to adjust? Or maybe you didn't, maybe you already were, as wonderful as I've ever known you to be <laughs> and, and we're able to just kind of bring that to bear with the kids. Um, what adjustments did you have to make? Um, we had to dig deep and find some patience. Um, I actually, for some self care, started therapy for myself just to deal with, with issues that um, in some ways my little boys would trigger me because I had been in foster care off and on growing up. And so I had to recognize, you know, that they were not intentionally trying to upset me, but it was my own stuff that I needed to go and work on and deal with and um, used a lot of validating their feelings, helping them feel secure. Um, what do you think, Doug? Um. I think for for me, it was we took the time to start engaging in learning, right? Learning a lot more about the situation we were in. I don't think being a really, really good foster parent, you figure out on your own. You have to reach out and Utah foster care was one. Um, counseling was another. Um, but recognizing that this was a journey that we were going to be on and that it was going to take time was probably the first step. Right, that it wasn't going to be. Uh, here's a band-aid and it's fixed. Right, you, you have all the healing that has to happen along the the path, and and part of that healing is you as a parent becoming to understand what trauma is and how it impacts the brain, how it impacts development, how it impacts every aspect of a child's life. I would have never known that before if I hadn't gone just assuming I'll just do what my parents did. Nothing my parents did would have worked here. So, you know, it really was about learning how to be a different parent. And I think I'm a better parent now than I would have ever been. I feel bad for my older kids because they got the raw dug and now I'm a more refined parent. So I think, anyway, I'll which I think, stop. Which I always think is cool is that, that one thing I've realized over the years is that um, the 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 tricks and, and techniques, and I kind of hate to use those words because this is more a way of being than a way of doing, but those are actually more effective for all children and all relationships, right. even even without trauma. So what we, you know, the stuff that works with that kids without trauma doesn't work with the kids with trauma, but the stuff that works with kids with trauma works with the kids without trauma. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a, it's a much richer way of approaching um, parenting and probably relationships in general. Right. 
And, and aren't there certain, certain physical things you can do, like when instead of looking down, like especially if they're afraid of you to start with, you have to get down to their level. Little things like that can make a big difference, can't they? I think especially um, both uh, Janet and Doug, you're tall people. I mean, you can't help that. You just are tall. Right. And so just, yeah, just sitting down or getting down on your knees, those things can make a big difference to kids. Yeah. And some, some of our foster kids, eye contact was okay, but some of them eye contact was not okay. So I think it's really important to read the cues that your children are giving you and just kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like you're a detective and you kind of have to figure out what you can do, how much you can hug them at first, how much you, do they want to be held? It's, it's kind of tricky. What are some of the behaviors right off the bat, less that you, you think foster parents might see the first week or two that kids come into their homes? Well, when we provide training for foster families, one of the most difficult things we, we do is to try to identify all the potential behaviors they can encounter as a result of the child's trauma. And therefore, we can never predict the, what the characteristics of each individual child will be, we can say, here are some of the things to look for. And, and so we look, talk about common outcomes for kids with trauma histories. And often the, the most prominent is anger, opposition, and aggression. Uh, yet we also see, and I think McLean's can probably speak to this as well, that the opposite is also true. You have children who withdraw who isolate and who don't engage and are very uh, non, uh, what's the right word here? Can somebody help me? Non-interactive? Yes. Is there a word for that? That's a good word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in the same sense. So you, you have the gamut of kids who are completely oppositional versus those who are docile and withdrawn. And then you can start to gauge that there are so many things in between that. Right. And, you can get charming, you can get manipulative, you can get kids who want to argue about everything. You, want, you have kids that will agree to anything. You have children who will push relationships away. You will also have children who become very dependent and clingy and won't let the foster parent out of their sight. And so, man, we, and here's where we get into the problem. We could go on about this for hours, just this topic alone, about what are the behavioral outcomes of trauma but that gives you some idea of what we're trying to help foster parents understand. And I think one thing too, and this has been a big, a big issue that I've really pushed when, when I was teaching is that when we look at those behaviors to think about what role did that behavior serve to help that kid? And because the behaviors I developed have been, have helped them survive in one way or the other. And so I want, I want families when they see these behaviors to instead of just thinking right away, how do I get them to stop this or start doing this, is to think about what role did this behavior play in their survival or perceived survival, and then honor that behavior. Like Janet, you talked about food hoarding. I mean, food hoarding is a really common behavior, um, and it makes a lot of sense when we understand where these kids have come from. And I want to honor that behavior, and I want to say to them, your brain tells you to do this because your brain is built to keep you alive, and that's amazing. And so to respect and see those behaviors with compassion and respect. And then of course, helping the children begin to feel safe so they can hopefully start to learn new behaviors. 
A few years ago, I came across uh, an article by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and it piqued my interest as I delved into it. I realized that the Academy of Pediatrics was uh, or developed a, basically a position paper on how to help foster and adoptive families cope with trauma. And so in the process of researching outcomes and how to help families who are working with this population, one of the things they determined that had the best results for children was to help them make sense of their own response to, their, to the world as a result of that experience. That we don't do a good enough job of helping kids make sense of their responses. And I think that's what Liz is speaking to, that we have to be a good at normalizing their responses in the context of their traumatic experience and then teach them ways to take that, that, that it, those emotional responses and produce differing behaviors in a world outside of trauma. That's essentially what the American Academy of Pediatrics was, was taught, one of the things I, they emphasized. Janet and Doug, can you think of a specific behavior where you tried to do that? Um, what do you think, Doug? I mean, there's... Well, I talked a little bit about that event where I was kind of frustrated with behavior at school and hitting all the kids. And it wasn't until I actually asked the question and was surprised at the answer because everybody hits me. It was a simple phrase, but it brought so much more meaning to the events that was happening, right? Because then I could say, oh, I understand a little bit more, right? But I think sometimes, I think it might be easier with older kids, but we have some really little kids that came to us and trauma happens to them and it's about finding what it is, the trigger that's happening because they weren't verbal when they had the trauma events. And so it's like, why does this child behave this way? And it's really, you have to really dig deep and try to find those events that trigger it because they didn't have words to describe them. So. I thought of a, another example, sorry. Um, he, one of ours, Jackson was very food deprived. And so he would literally, the first morning we came down, I walked down and Doug had given him some, he had, he was holding like a granola bar in one hand and like a fiber bar in the other hand and he had pancakes. He was not going to let go of that food. He was hanging on to it. And he's nine years old now and I can still see the issues that he has from um, being deprived of food. And he's my one who, like, if he thinks we're running out of food, he'll open the pantry and be like, mom, mom, you need to go to the store, mom, we need more food. And he's my one that I've explained to him, you know, because you went without food, food's really important to you. And, and it really doesn't matter as many times as I've told him, like, oh, you're here now, you'll always have food, you're so safe, like, we'll always feed you. It doesn't matter to him because he knows in his body what that felt like. So he literally takes usually a granola bar or a piece of bread upstairs with him every night to bed. And he doesn't always eat it, but he has it. And I don't know if I would have really understood that as much before with my neurotypical children, but 
with him, it's really obvious. I think that's an issue he's going to have his whole life, even though we're very consistent with meals, like he knows he's going to get fed. It's still there. And that's where as a, a parent, you need to, you need that keyword flexibility. Yes. You know, maybe you've had a rule in your house that, you know, no food in the rooms. All of a sudden, here's an exception to the rule. Right. I agree with that. And we had another placement um, that she was the same way. She was 11 and she just, I just had a Ziploc bag with some, some foods in it that she could keep in her room, even though she didn't always eat it, but she just knew that it was there. What she, about um, having, having older kids and maybe even preteen to teens? How do some of those behaviors manifest themselves that would be different? And is it always easier for them to express themselves? Right. Well, when we start to get into adolescence, we recognize now we have 13 years plus of trauma history. And, and so we often recognize that they have had a long time to develop behavioral responses to trauma they, and, and to get through some hard things. And so we can, it's very difficult to say, at least from my perspective, that certain behaviors at this age are, are easier to manage than say an infant or toddler that's exhibiting different behaviors. I think what we encounter with teenagers is kind of a preconceived notion that they're gonna be more difficult and therefore it sometimes biases our approach to parenting them. We automatically assume that because they're adolescents and we have generally bad attitudes about adolescents to begin with, that therefore we, we we approach them a little bit differently. And what I try to tell parents is to recognize that no matter the age of the child, their response to trauma is going to help them get through something very difficult. And you, as the caregiver, must be in a position to help them make sense of it. And so the behavior to me doesn't necessarily matter, if that makes sense. What matters is that we can help them understand that underneath that behavior, uh, they, they, there's, there's a behavior there's an emotional response. Let's help them make sense of that. Now in that context, it is easier when children are verbal to be able to do that. For children who are pre-verbal, uh, yeah, that becomes a much more difficult. And sometimes the challenges of working with younger children can outweigh the challenges of, of working with older kids for that reason. So it's very difficult, I think, to, to kind of classify what, where the difficulties are and in, in relationship to their age range, I think across the board, we just have to recognize that trauma impacts children and we have to help them, whatever the age, make sense of that and that's our primary responsibility. Well said. What are some other perspectives that perhaps the foster parent needs to go into this with? Um, I've, I've heard from some people saying, oh, those kids must just be so grateful to be in the foster parent's home. Things like that. What do you tell people in your classes? 
So I'll, I'm going to kick this one to uh, Janet and Doug because they both smiled when <laughs> you, you said that. Um, because I think that is a, a misperception is that the kids are going to feel lucky and they're going to feel grateful when in fact they often feel anything but. So I'm going to ask Janet and Doug to talk a little bit about that because they've definitely had this experience. Well, the, I think one of the first things and just from talking to other foster parents it, that you learn is that love is never enough. I think sometimes you just think, oh, I have all this love to give and all this, you know, this room and this and, and that's just, that's the very, very basic. Um, and the next thing is, yeah, children will not be grateful. They, they don't understand that. They don't, I know when I went into foster care at 14, I was um, afraid even to eat the food. Like I didn't think I deserved the food that my fam, foster family had. And I almost felt like a guest for a while. And I, I think that was seen as me being um, maybe a little bit rebellious or where it was just that I just didn't feel comfortable. It, it's very hard, you know, when you're a teenager. Um, one thing with our kids is I think the biggest thing that's helped our kids is to be consistent in meals and, and you know, bedtimes and um, – meet their needs oh to help them identify their emotions has been re really good for us but i just think it's just hard like it's hard to know like les was saying what each child needs at that certain age and that development time that like where their brain is at what do you think doug i think parenting's hard sometimes <laughs> It's just plain hard, whether it's your child in your home that comes from you raising them or it's a child coming from somewhere else. It's, every child's different and every situation has to be mentored for each child. And to assume that everything's going to work the same way across every child is a huge mistake. I, I think I think you have to think about them as individuals and reach out to them as individuals and not place preconceived notions of how to deal with it because of the minute you start doing that is the minute you start getting it wrong you got to figure out what that child needs and how that child needs to be approached because hey sometimes they just need distance and that's okay if you give it to them sometimes they may not need that that same type of caregiving right and and we don't really have foster kids but we've had a lot of teenagers and I'll tell you, I'm puzzled by all of them sometimes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and I think Les was absolutely right. You got to, to assume one way or another is probably a mistake and just take each child. And, and I think Liz taught us that. I think the circle of love training that you get is, I think that's what it's called. Circle of security. Uh, circle of security. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think again, if you're a foster parent and you're not taking training, you're making a huge mistake because there's so many things you can learn and then adapt. It's not that every class meets your need. It's learning to adapt and be flexible, as Deborah said. Mm -hmm. kind of and also learning from the other foster parents. Isn't that right? Yes, I think that's a huge, that's been a huge blessing to me. It's, it's interesting. Most of my friends are foster parents now. And we share a lot of ideas and, and books and, you know, go to this training and we give each other advice. And because I think 
every person has something to offer you if you'll just look for it and like every foster parent has their own their own like we said every child is different and so I might have a foster parent friend that has a child with totally different needs and issues and so I think it's great to reach out to other other um, foster families other foster parents well, believe it or not, we are nearing the end of our, our podcast, and we've just scratched the surface on behaviors and trauma. But uh, just to wrap things up, Les, um, any final thoughts with what you'd like folks to remember? I, I would like to remind our families or anyone working with children who have that trauma history that remember what you represent to a child with trauma, that is uh, a parent is a source of stress, a, store, a source of fear, and a chaos potentially, and, and essentially often emotionally unavailable to that child. And so that doesn't change simply by coming into a safe environment. It'll take them time to develop the, the idea and the understanding that you are emotionally available. Unlike any experience they've had prior to your home, that you are available to be the person to help them through their difficulties. Great advice. Thank you, Les Harris, talking to us from Vernal. And um, finally, uh, Doug and uh, Janet, any final thoughts to tell uh, people wanting to become foster parents? Um, it's a life-changing experience. It's one of the hardest and also most joyous things that you will ever do. It's been a great experience for our family. One of the most helpful things for me has been to look at, just to always remember to look at the child as he's not a bad child, but he's had bad and awful things happen to him. And that's, that's really helped me to have a, a really clear perspective to understand that it's not, it's not the child's fault. They didn't ask to be born into whatever they were born into and I feel like as adults and as a society that it's our responsibility to reach out and to help them to feel safe and secure. Yeah, I think, oh, oh, go sorry. ahead. Go ahead, Doug. I think the one thing I would say is that these kids are heroes because of where they come from and they're just looking for what we're all looking for. That's a place of security and love and helping them is so rewarding, as my wife said. And my co-host, Liz Rivera, any final thoughts from you? So as Doug said, parenting's hard <laughs> and it's a big ask. You know, I think both Janet and Les talked about responding to every kid individually and in the moment. And that takes a lot for a parent to do. So going back to what Janet says earlier, make sure you're taking care of yourself and that your needs are being met. Uh, on our website, there's a great uh, recorded training that Les does about secondary trauma. And I think it's a good one because I think we need to understand when we're living with children who've had trauma, it's inevitable that it's going to rub off on us to some degree. And so we need to understand how that's happening for us so we can be um, who these kids need us to be. Thank you, Liz Rivera, Les, our two trainers, and Janet and Doug McLean, two foster parents from uh, South Jordan. Thank you all. And I am going to end this with a, a quote that I read from a foster dad. It's remembering that there are no bad kids. 
just impressionable, conflicted little people wrestling with emotions and impulses. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.